you'll take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Exodus, chapter number 3. Exodus, chapter 3. If you are here this morning with little, if any, concept of what it means to be a Christian, to be a follower of Jesus, what this talk of salvation is about, what the gospel is, often we as church people can speak in our own lingo, and uh, sometimes that lingo can be misunderstood or not understood at all. I hope that what you'll find in this morning's message is a simple, clear, straightforward presentation of the gospel, a discussion of what God has done in order to save his people from their sin. For those of you who are here under the blood of Jesus, who have tasted and experienced that indeed he is good, I hope that you will reflect on what God has done in your life personally to save you from your sin. If you have been a student of the Bible for any time, you likely know that Exodus 3 is where Moses encounters God at a mysterious burning bush in the wilderness. And superficially, it would seem that Moses and his call is, is the, the main feature of Exodus 3. But what I want you to know is that God is the hero of the story here in Exodus 3. God draws near in a special way in this miraculous manifestation of his presence. God is the hero of Exodus 3. Indeed, God is the hero of all of Scripture. And so while we talk about this morning God calling Moses, we'll deal specifically with Moses' call in the weeks ahead, I want you to concentrate on what God promises he will do through Moses for the people of Israel here in Exodus 3. If you found your way there, I'd like to invite you now, if you would, to stand with me out of respect and honor for the reading of God's Word. Exodus chapter number 3. We'll begin reading in verse 1. Here the Bible says, Meanwhile, Moses was shepherding the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. He led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. Then the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire within a bush. As Moses looked, he saw that the bush was on fire but was not consumed. So Moses thought, I must go over and look at this remarkable sight. Why isn't the bush burning up? When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called out to him from the bush, Moses, Moses. And he answered, Here I am. Do not come closer, he said. Remove the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he continued, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. The Lord said, I have observed the misery of my people in Egypt and have heard them crying out because of their oppressors, and I know about their sufferings. I've come down to rescue them from the power of the Egyptians and to bring them from, a, from the land to a, to a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the territory of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. 
The Israelites' cry for help has come to me, and I have also seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. Therefore, go. I'm sending you to Pharaoh so that you may lead my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses asked God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the Israelites out of Egypt? He answered, I will certainly be with you, and this will be the sign to you that I've sent you. When you bring the people out of Egypt, you will all worship God at this mountain. Then Moses asked God, if I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What should I tell them? God replied to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you're to say to the Israelites, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the Israelites, Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. This is how I am to be remembered in every generation. Go and assemble the elders of Israel and say to them, Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has appeared to me and said, I've paid close attention to you and to what has been done to you in Egypt. And I've promised you that I will bring you up from the misery of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. They will listen to what you say. Then you, along with the elders of Israel, must go to the king of Egypt and say to him, Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. Now please let us go on a three-day trip into the wilderness so that we may sacrifice to Yahweh our God. However, I know that the king of Egypt will not allow you to go unless he's forced by a strong hand. I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all my miracles that I will perform in it. After that, he will let you go. And I will give these people such favor in the sight of the Egyptians that when you go, you'll not go empty-handed. Each woman will ask her neighbor and any woman staying in her house for silver and gold jewelry and clothing, and you'll put them on your sons and daughters. So you will plunder the Egyptians May the Lord bless the reading and the preaching of his word. You may be seated. When we left off last week, Moses was hiding in Midian, hiding from the Israelites, hiding from Pharaoh, hiding from the Egyptians in general, and in some ways hiding even from himself. And here he is in a place the Bible describes here in verse 1 as on the far side of the wilderness. The King James says he was on the back side of the wilderness. A lot of people struggle with the language of the King James at that point, but in the South we understand this language. On the back side of nowhere means that you're really, really, really far out. You have to go somewhere to start to get anywhere else. Here is Moses on the backside of nowhere, hiding from his own identity, hiding from God, hiding from the Israelites, hiding from Pharaoh, hiding from the Egyptians, and God finds him there. Moses is out tending his flock, and there's a bush in the distance burning, but it is not consumed. And Moses says, in what may be one of the most understated verses in all of the Scripture, I must go over and look at this remarkable sight. Indeed, he did. 
The Bible says in verse 4 that when the Lord saw that Moses had gone over, he called out to him. He cried, Moses, Moses, and Moses responded. God said in verse 5, do not come closer. Remove the sandals from your feet, for the place where you're standing is holy ground. The burning bush was not holy ground by virtue of its geographical location. It was on the backside of nowhere. It was holy ground because it was there that God was pleased to meet with Moses. Aren't you glad for the promise of the scripture that where we're gathered together in his name under the banner of the gospel, he is pleased to meet with us. Brothers and sisters, the place where we are standing is holy ground, not consecrated by the sign next to the street, by a worship center title across the doors where we entered in, or even by our presence here, but by the simple fact that where we sing his praise, God is pleased to assemble with his people. Aren't you glad for that? Moses, remove your sandals for the place you stand is holy ground, and God identified himself as the God of Abraham and Isaac and of Jacob, and it brought trembling to the heart of Moses, and he hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. In verse 7, God makes his intentions clear. He says, I have observed the misery of my people in Egypt, and I have heard them crying out because of their oppressor, and I know about their sufferings. And God says, I have come down to rescue them from the power of the Egyptians. This this first point in your outline almost left off because for some of you, this will feel like a secondary thing, something of little significance. But, But I want you to know that God determined to save his people. That God is not flying by the seat of his pants. That in the foundation of the world, God made a plan to save his people. In the foundation of the world, God made a plan to save the people of Israel from their Egyptian bondage. Joshua, Joseph rather, was already on to this a bit in Genesis 50 when he said, What you intended for evil, God meant for good, that many would be kept alive, not only in his generation as the Egyptians were saved through the famine and the remnant of Israel was saved through the famine, but in foregoing generations, the salvation of God would come out of Egypt in the Israelite people, saving many, many, many generations from their slavery. In the foundation of the world, God had a plan. There was a conspiracy hatched within the Godhead that God would save his people. Now, this is precious to me because I'm a planner. Every day I begin the day with a checklist. I need to know what is next. I need to know when it's coming. There is comfort for me in the knowledge that there is a plan. I want you to know this morning that God has a plan, that he has determined. Just as he did in the case of the people of Israel, in the foundation of the world, that his only begotten son would be sent forth, that he would shed his life blood for the salvation of many. God is not haphazard in his work. He is not careless. He is not with he is not without foresight. He has a determined plan for his people. And in fact, the fact that you are here is not incidental. 
every person here according to the divine plan of God. Is that refreshing, encouraging to you? God said, I have heard the cry of the Egyptian people, and the plan is now in process. I know about their oppressors. I know about their sufferings, and I have come down to address their need. In verse 8, the Bible says, I've come down to rescue them from the power of the Egyptians. God came down to save them from bondage. To save them out of the hands of their Egyptian oppressors. To deliver them out of that place of slavery. To save them from bondage. The work of our Savior Jesus is similar. That he has come to save us from our sin. In fact, he has come to save us from the wrath of God against our sin. And even from the presence of our sin in our life. In a sense, he has come to save us from ourselves. From piling upon ourselves the consequences of our sin. So much so we simply cannot bear it. In an earthly sense and certainly in a heavenly sense. As the wrath of God would be poured against us. He has come to save us from bondage. But that is not all that God intended to do in the people of Israel, and it's not all that Jesus intends to do in the life of his people. The remainder of verse 8 tells us that he's come not only to save us from bondage, but he's come to save us for the promised land. He says, I intend to bring them from a land, from that land, to a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the territory of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and the Jebusites. I've come to take them from Egypt and to put them down in the promised land. Now, all of the ites that are listed here, It may seem redundant. They're listed more than once in Exodus 3, and they're listed dozens of times throughout the Old Testament. But I can guarantee you that for Moses' initial audience, the message would resonate. The land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites is a land that flowed with milk and honey. It was a land that was legendary in the mind of neighboring nations. But there's more than that. It's a land inhabited by powerful people. It's a land they're not likely to possess. In fact, even the Hittite people, we think about the Hittites in context of the promised land, the land that we know today is Israel. But the Hittite empire was vast, spanning, if, you're a, if you know geography, even to the north of what is modern-day Greece, it was a vast empire. And so the idea that God would take this fledgling nation, Israel, and give them the land of the Hittites, not to mention the Canaanites, the Perizzites, and all the other ites mentioned here, is just an absurd notion. But God had promised he would do it. He said, I came to save you from bondage and for the promised land. When Paul writes to the Colossian church in Colossians chapter 1, he has this notion in mind. When he says that Jesus has delivered us from the domain of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son he loves. Think about that. The kingdom of the Son he loves. 
a place that is beyond legendary for the fruit it holds, a land that flows with milk and honey in excess, a land that is ruled over by a king who has always known the victory, a place that we as an unrighteous people, this small, this modest people are unlikely to inhabit, Nevertheless, a land that God has promised to give us as heirs to his son. He has plucked us up from the domain of darkness and set our feet on gospel ground in the kingdom of the son he loves. God came to save us from bondage and he came to save us for the promised land. Look at verse 9. The Israelites cry for help has come to me. And I have also seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. I want you to know, hurting brothers and sisters, that God hears your cry and he sees your oppressor. And although this world is not often a place of justice or equity, that there is coming a day when perfect justice is served. When you are vindicated, when the penalty is paid for your oppression, and when the cooling balm of the blood of Jesus is applied directly to every wound you bear. God says, I have heard of your suffering. I know of your oppression. Verse 10, he says, therefore go. I am sending you to Pharaoh so that you may lead my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. He's going to send Moses to be the leader of the people of Israel that will deliver them out. Now, we talked last week about the many ways that God was preparing Moses for this great work of deliverance. Let's think for just a moment about them. Moses was born under unusual circumstances. He was tucked away in a small ark in the reeds of the Nile River and discovered by the daughter of Pharaoh. The result of God's deliverance there from Moses, even as an infant child, was that he was reared in the Pharaoh's court, meaning that he understood how things move and uh, the sort of processes and operations of Egyptian leadership. Not only was he aware of how things work in Pharaoh's court, he was an Israelite by birth and sympathized with the Israelites' plight. He knew Hebrew culture inside and out. He has the linguistic skills necessary to communicate with all the parties involved in this particular process. He is schooled in all things Egyptian. In fact, when he goes to the well and meets what will eventually be his wife being taken back to the home of Jethro, the Midianite priest, they introduce him as an Egyptian. He could be confused with an Egyptian. He had so adapted to Egyptian culture. What I'm driving at here is that Moses is just the man for the job. All across his life, God was preparing Moses through unusual circumstances to serve in this capacity as the leader of the Israelite people that would deliver them from their Egyptian bondage. And here he says to Moses, go, go to Pharaoh and tell him to let my people go. You will be the leader that delivers the Israelite people out of their bondage. Now listen, God works here in the case of the Israelites, and it's true in our experience as well. God works through a mediator to save his people. 
In the case of the Israelites, it was Moses. Moses would be the man who would stand in the gap. If, if you want some encouragement in your prayer life as a spiritual leader, read the prayers of Moses. Look at those episodes in Moses' life when he stands between the judgment of God and the people of God in their sin. Moses stands ready, if he could, to drink the bitter cup of God's wrath against his people. It's a desire that's beyond his ability. But there is at least a want in the heart of Moses. Moses served as the mediator between God and the people of God. Now, aren't you glad that Hebrews says that we have in Jesus a better Moses? That there, there, there no longer stands a mediator between God and man save the God-man, Jesus Christ. Christ, our mediator, standing between the wrath of God against us and the people of God, even in our ungodliness. Not only willing, but able to drink the bitter cup of God's wrath against us. God says, this is how I'll do it, Israelites. And he sets the pattern for what his son would do for us through his death and resurrection. Moses would be the man through whom God would work the deliverance of the Israelite people. In verse 12, Moses, God rather, answers the reluctance of Moses, I will be with you. There are echoes of this passage in the Great Commission. When God charges us that we would go. There is but one mediator between God and man, the God-man Jesus Christ. But in this strange, revolutionary kind of way, we have all, by faith in Jesus, become ambassadors for Christ. Pleading with men and women and boys and girls that they would turn to faith in Jesus. That they would come from under the oppression of their sin and their bondage. That they would come to Jesus for salvation. Christ has charged us that we would go therefore and declare to them that they must come and speak against their oppression, that they must be let loose, that they would worship the one true and living God. And there is the promise of Christ there in Matthew 28, lo, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. God says the sign of my promise will be the gathering of my people under the leadership of Moses at this mountain where you will worship me. And indeed, chapters later, we'll find Moses and the people of Israel at Sinai worshiping God. In verse 13, Moses asked God, if I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what's his name? What should I tell them? And God replied to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you're to say to the Israelites, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the Israelites, Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. This is how I am to be remembered in every generation. Tell them I am has sent you. Now, we're so familiar with, with this uh, moniker, this title, this self-identification of God as I am, that we're almost not surprised by what we find in our passage. But I want you to take special note here that God has revealed himself in a special way. 
There are a couple of instances, a few instances in Genesis where God is referred to by this I am name. It's translated in many of your Bibles as, as Yahweh. But, but those are Moses speaking that name into the past. That was not the way that God was identified until this moment in time in history. God has just revealed himself in a way he had not until now revealed himself. At the burning bush, God says, Moses, let me tell you what my name is. And everywhere this shows up in the Bible, there are tricks in your English translations to help you know when the proper name of God is being used and when more generic uh, names for God are there. For instance, in your Bibles, where the name of God is listed specifically as Yahweh, your Bibles will translate those, those words as capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. When something like Adonai for Lord is used, a more generic way of referring to God, you'll have capital L, little O, little R, little D. Everywhere, all caps Lord is used, it's a reference to the proper name of God, a name newly revealed in Exodus chapter 3. There is extra oomph about the command of God in the book of Exodus, thou shalt not take the Lord's name in vain. Specific reference to the name of God. This is precisely the thing that Paul has in view in Philippians 2. When, when he says, humble yourself even as Christ had, considering it not robbery to be counted equal with God, nevertheless laying aside the glories of heaven, embracing servanthood even to the point of death, even death on the cross, that every knee would bow and every tongue would confess as Christ has been given the name above all other names. What Paul is saying there is that this is him, that Jesus is the divine. Christ is God the Son. He has been given the name above all other names, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. Jesus Christ is Lord. Here God reveals himself in a unique way. But the most unique, the most outstanding, the most startling, and the most Oh, the most outstanding revelation of God the world has ever seen is in the person and face of his son, Jesus Christ. Yeah. Hebrews 1.4 says he is the bright radiance of God's glory. Colossians 1.15 says he is the image of the invisible God. Paul goes on to say in him the fullness of the Godhead dwelt bodily. Jesus said to the Pharisees, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. Uh -huh. To save his people Israel, God revealed himself in a special way, self-identifying as Yahweh. But I want you to know that throughout the ages, what God has done to save his people without re regard for nation or ethnicity, tribe or tongue, is that he has revealed himself in a special way, the most special of ways, through his son, Jesus Christ. God promises that he'll work salvation among them in order that his name is remembered in every generation. Look down to verse 18. 
They will listen to what you say. He's encouraging Moses. They'll listen. They'll listen, and then they'll go along. You, along with the elders of Israel, you must go to the king of Egypt and say to him, Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. Let us go into the wilderness on a three-day trip so that we may sacrifice to Yahweh, our God. However, I know that the king of Egypt will not allow you to go unless he is forced by a strong hand. I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all my miracles that I will perform in it. After that, he will let you go. Now, God orchestrates the events of Israel's salvation in such a way that only he can receive the glory. God brought salvation, yes, for the deliverance of his people, but more than anything else, hear me, more than anything else, in order to glorify himself. You know who the gospel is about glorifying? God. One of the things that troubles me about the way we can tend to talk about the gospel if we're not very careful, we can, we can turn the gospel to be so concentrated on us that we forget that ultimately and finally the gospel is about the glorification of our God. What God intends to do to bring honor and fame to his name in the world is to work salvation for his people. God saves his people to glorify his name. The glory of God, the glory of God is mission critical. We are nothing apart from the glory of God. God has been pleased to reveal himself to us. We have beheld his glory. We have looked longingly into the face of Jesus. He has gathered us unto himself. And our life's ambition from this moment forward, having come to know Jesus as Lord over our life, is to ensure that the world knows, the four corners of the world knows, that God is worthy of all worship and praise. He deserves the glory, the honor, the celebration of every man and woman and boy and girl. It is an immoral thing. It is a bad thing. It is a sinful thing that we would fail to pay worship to our God. God comes to save his people, to glorify his name. Here, lastly, I want you to note that God worked miracles to deliver the people. I think sometimes we get this idea that miracles happen from Genesis to Revelation. And I understand that miracles are always happening in some way, shape, form, or fashion. I understand that. But I, I mean the things that we typically think about when we think in terms of miracles. But there are really only three very brief periods of time in the history of the Bible where miracles such as this are being performed. Jesus and the apostles... Elijah and Elisha, and Moses and Joshua. In the grand scheme of the history of the Bible, those, those, those are really relatively brief windows of time. But here in the case of the people of Israel, God says, I'm going to work powerfully and I'm going to work miraculously in order to deliver my people from their sin. That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to move heaven and earth. We'll see what God does in the plagues and chapters that are to come. But I, I want you to see that again, 
This pattern that God is working with to save his people, it holds fast. For what he has done in order to save us from our bondage, to save us from our sin, is to work miraculously. In fact, the greatest of all miracles was wrought in order that we could be saved from our sin. Jesus dies as our substitute on the cross. Jesus dies in our place. God the Son lays aside the glories of heaven to walk among us without sin. He dies on the cross, and it felt like for the disciples the end of the story. They bury his body in a borrowed grave outside the city. And Saturday is spent feeling as though all is lost. When you see the disciples on the Emmaus Road, they're downtrodden and discouraged. They're deflated. They're defeated. They've given up on what Jesus held forth for them. But on the third day, on the third day, the greatest miracle this world has ever experienced was worked in the garden grave as the lifeless body of Jesus Christ was infused again with life, he began to breathe. The stone was rolled away, and Christ, the once dead Christ, walked forth as the living Savior of the world. God works miracles to deliver his people from their sin. And even this morning, even this morning, God is well pleased through the power of his son to work miracles to deliver his people from their sin. The Bible says that the natural man cannot discern the things of the spirit. There, There is the necessary work of the spirit of God in the heart of every man, woman, boy, and girl if you're to understand anything of the gospel. Sometimes people will come to me and say, I feel like the Lord is drawing me. I feel like the Lord is convicting me. Do you, do you think God is calling me to salvation? Is there something going on in my life? And I say, Absolutely. Because you have an awareness of your lostness. You're an understanding of the gospel. An understanding that you cannot have apart from the work of God in your life. There are, there are scales on our eyes and calluses on our heart. We are cold and indifferent toward the things of God apart from the miracle power of Jesus. Yes, yes. Right now, even as we're gathered, the Lord may be pleased to work such a miracle yes, that understanding would be granted, that you could see yourself as you are, lost, broken, in need of redemption. He might be pleased to work the miracle of giving sight to the blind, helping your sin-blinded eyes see Jesus for who he is for the first time in your life. He might be pleased to do the miracle of resurrection. For the Bible says that we are dead in our sins and trespasses apart from Christ, but we have been made alive in Christ Jesus by faith in Christ and Christ alone. Would you join me this morning in praying that God would do the miraculous, that he'd give sight to the blind, that he'd raise the dead to life, that he'd do it through his son Jesus Christ, And that he'd work it in such a way that he and he alone could receive the glory.